Thank you, Justin. Okay, can you hear me? All right, excellent. Some of you have maybe have heard me preach before, and um, that I can do. Uh, giving lectures, on the other hand, is not my forte. Um, but we'll, we'll, you'll bear with me, and we'll, um, we'll get the, through this together. So the Nunc Dimittis has been part of evening prayer in the West for about the past 1,400 years. We see the assembly of the breviary um, by the Benedictines and St. Benedict, and uh, though he did not include it, it is found in breveries uh, dating back to the, um, the mid-7th uh, century. It was added to Compline, uh, Compline uh, the bedtime office in the middle of the 7th century. When Archbishop Cramner condensed the breviary into morning and evening prayer, he placed it in evening prayer where it had been historically at the very end, and it's the last of the gospel canticles that we have uh, as one prays a morning and evening prayer. I have more to say about this, but let's uh, turn our attention to the text. Every text needs to be given context, and I was discussing this with Father uh, downstairs just before uh, we began because he you know, gave context for his <clears throat> thing. And he talked about the Gospel of Luke and so forth and so on. I will do the same, um, but uh, hopefully we, there won't be too much uh, overlap. We do both concur uh, that the Gospel of Luke could easily be called the Gospel of the Blessed Virgin Mary for a number of reasons, both internal and external to the text, and this view, by the way, is, would be common uh, in any seminary class where, uh, where uh, scholars are sitting and, and talking about the Gospel of Luke. Um, the Gospel of Luke has early and um, undisputed attestation as to its authorship. Everyone agreed from the very beginning that the, the physician Luke was indeed the man who wrote the Gospel. This is the same Luke who appears in the book of Acts in chapter 16, verse 10. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll notice that in 1610, he starts off saying, well, and we were there and I was there. Okay? And at that point, Luke joins the story of Acts. He's finally caught up to where he was. Paul mentions Luke in Colossians 4.14, referring to him as my beloved physician. He travels with Paul for several years, ending up in Rome, as the tradition uh, relates, uh, was with the Apostle Paul up to the point of his execution in about 62 AD. And you'll remember that the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, so unlike the other apostles who were filleted and crucified and uh, cut into pieces and so forth and so on, the Apostle Paul got the execution of a citizen. His head was chopped off. It was a quick uh, and uh, relatively, I suppose, painless death, though I don't think anyone would want to have their head chopped off. It is uh, surmised from his close relationship with the Apostle Paul that along with Timothy, Titus, Luke was a Grecian convert from Paul's second missionary journey. So after that, he departs from Paul and he travels to Palestine to get firsthand accounts of all that he had been taught. And we understand this from the superscription or the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, where he's writing to Theophilus, his friend, and he's writing down everything that they had been told. He, want, he goes back to Palestine to confirm these things. Those, 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 uh, the compilation of those writings is the book of Luke and Acts of the Apostles. 58% of the Gospel of Luke has material not found in Matthew and Mark, 
which leads one to believe that he does not have a lot of contact with the other apostles. And the added material is of such a nature that only the Blessed Virgin Mary could have given it to him. The most complete and detailed birth narrative is found in Luke, along with other intimate details, like the refrain, she pondered these things in her heart. (laughs) Well, only the Blessed Virgin Mary would have known what was in her heart. She was the only one that could have recounted that to Luke. The association of a foreigner with a Jewish woman makes more sense as well, since the normal um, prohibitions or or confines, both in Greek and in um, uh, Palestine at the time, uh, would have kind of broken those things down because they were of two separate cultures. So him hanging out with her would have made more sense than if he was a Jewish man trying to get information from this woman. And the natural affinity that women have for physicians as opposed to men. Ask your husband to go to the doctor. And you'll have to wait until you have to call an ambulance. Women, on the other hand, uh, they love hanging out with doctors. They love to go see the doctor. Okay? And so, well, in general. Um, at least that's, okay, that may be a man's perspective. I'll grant you that. But it makes, it makes sense that, you know, she's hanging out with a doctor. Oh, goodness. Um, His gospel does have an emphasis, and we've said this before, Father did, but on the poor and on women more than any other gospel. And the same can be said of the Blessed Virgin, who was a poor woman. And so Luke, under the tutelage of the Blessed Virgin Mary, gives us much greater detail of the time when even the Lord himself would not be able to recall as he was an infant. And so we have this, we turn to this scene before us this morning. Now, the man Simeon was righteous and devout, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And he was informed by the Holy Ghost that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, as we look at the text, I want, to, I want to dig down into it just a little bit, and I don't want to get too bogged down into the original language, but I, I think that it's important. There are some things here, that, how it's actually written, um, that, that give us some insight into this. The word Lord, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Now, the typical way to say Lord, and the way that's used in every instance except for five in the New Testament is the word curios. Now, the transliteration of that word into Latin is curiae, from which we get curiae eleison, Christe eleison, curiae eleison, or in English, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. But the word that he uses is not curios. He gives us this word that's it's 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 uh, it's not used that often, and that is um, how do we say harsher than the word curios. Now bear in mind that Luke writes the best Greek of of any of the writers, except maybe Paul. But I would say that Luke's even better than Paul. 
Um, he has in his gospel the most uh, what's called hapax legomena in the entire gamma, in the entire gospel, or in, in the entire New Testament. I think it's eleven words that only occur once and only at the hand of Luke. Now, why is this? Well, Luke is a native Greek speaker. This is his native language. Jesus spoke Aramaic. We know because when they directly quote him, it's a transliteration from, from Aramaic into Greek. They're not Greek words. So Jesus and the apostles spoke Aramaic, the language which is a cognate to Hebrew in Palestine at that time. But Luke, on the other hand, is a native Greek speaker. And so his use of the language is much more um, precise. If you read, for instance, the Gospel of, of Mark, which is basically Peter uh, relating what, what happened you know, at the end of his life, and, and it's, it's the Gospel of, of Peter given to Mark, it's, it's, it, it's one run-on sentence if you actually read the original text. And, and... And the word is chi in, um, in, 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 in uh, Greek. And you could not forget that word after reading Mark because it probably appears in the gospel a thousand times if it appears once. It's just not good Greek. It really isn't. And, you know, it's the same can be said of John in Revelation as, as John becomes an older man and he's in his 90s writing the Revelation. You'll find this in older people, say a Spanish speaker who's lived in the United States for a long time. But when they get older, they begin to revert back to the to the Spanish, you know, as, as their mind closes in a little bit, and they and they 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 begin to speak Spanish more and and understand English less. And and so it was in the in the Revelation. There's a lot of Hebraisms. It's just simply not good Greek. It reads more like Aramaic that someone is writing out with Greek letters. This is not the case with Luke. Luke's Greek is great, it is precise, and he is an educated man. And he uses the word despotes for Lord in this passage. It is the word that we get despot from. Now, I know in English that has a lot of really, really negative connotations. Not so negative in the Greek, but it definitely drives this idea of one who rules with absolute authority. You combine that with the word doulos, which is translated servant, but could also be translated slave, and in front of despotes would probably be better translated slave. And you have that the reading where it, it appears that Simeon has been posted like a soldier to stand watch at the temple, waiting. For Christ. Does that make sense? Another word that's interesting to point out here is apoluo. This is the word of now lettest thou thy servant, um, the, the lettest part, or letting. It's actually it's the, a better translation because it's present tense active would be letting. Okay. Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace. And it has this sense of being set free of manumission. And I actually had to look that word up. Um, but it's a release. Manumission is, is to release uh, someone who, who is a slave or someone who owes a debt or someone who uh, you've paid ransom for. 
but he has been released. He has been manumitted from his charge. Now, the glory of the Lord had resided in the temple. You'll recall that when, um, well, you recall the tabernacle that they followed around the desert for 40 years had a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And uh, later in the Solomonic temple, the temple that Solomon built after David had, had gone to his fathers, um, that, that, uh, that God's, there's a scene where God's presence enters into the temple. And then later, because of Israel's disobedience, the glory departs out of the temple, and we see that in Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and when the Persians came to power, they allowed the Jews to return to Palestine to rebuild their temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And you'll recall that the older people, those who were maybe little kids when the, the uh, not the exodus, but the uh, exile had occurred, had come back, and when they saw them rebuild, and they, they, they finished the foundations, and all the people were cheering, and the old people were weeping. They were crying because of how pathetic the new temple was compared to the temple of Solomon. But it was never about the building. It was about God's presence. And now in this moment, the presence of God has returned to the temple. And God has a witness, and his witness is Simeon. Now we go further down in the text, and it talks about how uh, this child will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And that's a, that's a, a, a better uh, a rendering of the, of the actual text, revelation, the, the word of, uh, Apocalypse, where we get the, the, the book of Revelation, that's, that's the same word that they use. Now, you have to remember that this is, this is hard, probably, for a lot of Jews in the temple to hear. Remember, Judaism is a religion and a race. And while there were proselytes, uh, there was a mixture of feeling about even Gentiles who converted. Salvation had been for God's chosen people and them alone. And they had been against the world, and their standards of holiness, which they kept against the world, um, was, was not easily done by them. And so there was always this sense that Israel was kind of against the world. And now he's spoken of in terms of bringing light and revelation to the Gentiles. The military, political, Zionist leader that was coming to defeat the Gentiles, not to save them. They were, their enemy was Rome, Gentile, Greece, Gentile, Egypt, Gentile. That was their enemy. Their profound historical enemy was the world outside of Israel. And now the one who was coming to save them from all of that was going to be a light to revelation to the Gentiles? Question mark, question mark, question mark. 
He would be the glory of Israel, and he is the glory of Israel to this day. He is the blessing promised to Abraham and to all the families of the world who would be blessed through him. And in Christ, that promise made so long ago in Genesis chapter 12. And mm, a millennia and, uh, and 800 years okay, from this point, almost two millennia, is now being realized. Now, at the beginning, I stated that the Nuctimidus has been 1,400 years, the bedtime prayer of the church. Let's take a look at that for a moment. There is a similarity between night and sleep with death. Some traditions tell us that when Simeon left the temple after his encounter with Christ, He died that very day. Some say he died as he walked out of the temple itself. May or may not be true. But when one dies, it does look as though they are asleep. In fact, it's true of those who do sleep, except, I guess, if you snore, and then you probably don't look like you're dead. But otherwise, nighttime is a time of danger. Most crimes are committed at night out of the light of day to avoid being caught. One cannot see at night in the darkness. One could be prone to injury. People are frightened by the darkness. The prayer book, we always give thanks to God for the, for the, for the deliverance from the, the dangers of this past night. And yet we are people who keep watch. We do not know what hour our master will return. And we do not want to be the foolish and lazy servants who were not prepared when the master did return. We are a people who should endeavor to live in such a manner that upon our Lord's return, we will not be found wanting. It is fitting that when we lie down to sleep, we should recite the song of Simeon to ourselves. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. It may be that we wake in the morning and we stand another watch. It may be that the Lord takes us in our sleep. But we are a people who keep watch. And we must always be mindful of that. Our life should be a life of keeping watch. Now, I know it's been 2,000 years since our Lord ascended. And it may be another 1,000 or more before he returns, but we do not know that. We have no idea the hour in which he could return before I get done with this sentence. And that is how we should live our lives. We should live our lives as a people who keep watch. And so whether we complete our watch in this life or at the resurrection, we shall all one day see the Lord's salvation, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Keep watch with patience, and pray. All right. So I can't help but preach. So I know it ended up as a sermon at the end. That's, uh, that's, I'm sorry. I'm going to turn this off.